Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. We are back. It is Tuesday, September 22nd. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, we have Tim Byers. We have an interview with Tim Byers, one of my favorite software analysts. Mm -hmm. Um, Not our traditional show. We've got a bunch of different stuff. So we're going to debrief on our breaks, um, talk about any stories that we missed from our hiatus. Yeah, the last, oh, we're three months now. Uh, so basically June, July, August, and whatever we've had here in September. Yeah, it's been a while. And then we have some big announcements, uh, big announcements which we'll get to. And then we also, on the back half, as always, we've got our hot water, fuck, Mary kill, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome in. Before we get to the news stories and talk about our breaks, we have yeah. some big announcements. Um, so Chit Chat Money is officially a business now, CCM Media Group. So uh, thanks yeah. to our wonderful fans, we have uh, we have a studio. So if that's you're watching right. this on video, that's right, we have video now. So we're going to have a YouTube channel. Um, we will have on our chitchatmoney.com, there's going to be a podcast section where you can watch the whole video, the whole podcast. Um, Just so, as a YouTube link, but yeah, yeah, you can watch it there as well. Um, so it's going to be real easy to watch. Um, and then also we have a producer now, Brady. Brady, welcome to the show. I don't know if they can hear you from there, but yeah. give a hello. Hello. Yeah, yeah we'll, if we'll you can hear that, we don't know if you can hear that, but he did wave and he is – Ryan, he is your brother. Yes, that uh, is correct. So. Brady Henderson. Um, so he's with us now. And yeah, I don't, should we name the studio? Uh, the the Anchor Studio. The Anchor Studio. They're no, only, we'll, only, we'll our sponsor. only sponsor yeah. right now. So Yeah, there's a lot of sponsors that will need to – yeah, they're vying for that space. But. Okay, so uh, those are the big announcements, and then we're going to debrief on our break. So you – scavenged the wilderness for three and a half months. Yeah, do you want to do mine first? Or? Yeah, did you okay. encounter any bears? No bears. I was actually going to make a joke that I didn't see any bears in the wild. Uh, so That's the bull, a bull. The, the bull, bull market still has room to run. That, uh, that means something for sure. No, it uh, does. I mean, usually people do see bears. It was like unusual for me not to see any bears, so that's a good investing omen for me for the next, uh, that's a good I don't know, maybe for the – for the next year or so. so where did you start again? You started like San Diego area? Uh, yeah, so it's the Pacific Crest Trail if anyone's actually interested, but I didn't start at the Mexican border. Uh, typically, people do these big hikes that go from the Mexican to the Canadian border, and it follows this one trail, so it's called a through hike, and you basically are going on your own, but there's a few thousand people that typically do it. Because of COVID in the spring, I couldn't start till later in June, so I started up higher on the map farther north. So I started northeast of Los Angeles in the town called Tehachapi, and then you wave, weave your way through the mountains. Um, you're just hiking, picking up your food along the way at either a store or you get it mailed to you. You have your gear with you, so you're basically homeless and carrying all your, your life on your back. And then I made it all the way up a good portion of Washington until the smoke got kind of bad. 
and I uh, just have a little bit to finish up there. But yeah, hiked over two thousand miles of it. Pretty rugged. Uh, and no bears, which no is bears. the main thing. Yeah, a lot of you know deer, squirrels, marmots. Any no scary ma- experiences? Anything where you're like, I, I could die right now? Uh, there were some wildfires close by to me, which was scary. And I'll tell you, the night is scary. Like, I thought about that. Like, I, we were driving late at night, and I was like, hmm, it'd be even scarier if I was pitching well, a tent right now. Yeah, you can – if you're by yourself and you're in your little tent – and you hear any noise in the night, like sometimes you hear an animal walking, and it's like a stick breaks, and you're like, good God, this animal's coming to kill me right now. Well, they're really just walking around. But, like, yeah, in the night you're scared of, like, a wolf or a mountain lion or something, but they're they're never going to really come after you. Was it there... is weird, though, to think about how there's lions kind of roaming the mountains. That Did you get, like, two hours into your hike and go, like, oh, shit, this might have been a mistake? No, the first day was hard. It was one of the windiest days, probably 40 miles an hour winds in the desert. So that day kind of sucked, to be honest. Um, but you have the adrenaline the first day. Okay. But then, like, the middle of the hike is where you're, where you're like, man, I haven't even made it halfway yet. And you're just walking through Northern California. That which, was the whatever what, – what's the mile people always say, like, sucks for marathons, like the 21st mile that was – Yeah, thing. something like that. Where something like, yeah. Okay. Well, um, my break – uh, I I got like a two month Airbnb. Had to work virtually for the Motley Fool, but I was in Virginia, so kind of got that East Coast experience. Yep. The Motley Fool. There's a lot of hype about them being like a great business and all, and they are like they, to work for, right? You have good benefits. Everyone's nice. Are insanely happy there, and it makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. and also kind of a kick ass investing team. Like I was, you know, they've got yeah. top of the line, and I know I'm sort of. We have a software analyst from The Fool on our interview today, so you'll get to see it, but they're good. And there's even people that aren't on Twitter that you're probably not paying attention to that are really good as well. Yeah, and that's uh, that's Tim. He's one of those guys. Uh, one question, what did you do on a typical day? Yeah, I don't know if you can, you can't disclose everything, like the trade secrets or whatever, but what were you doing? I know it's different virtually this summer, but. Yeah, it was, so we had like our morning meeting, which was basically just catch up. And then there's like different channels and stuff where you're kind of sharing different articles or whatever's going on in the day. And then you have different projects that you're working for. So like I had, to, I got to do a stock pitch to the investing team. Nice. Were and you nervous? A little yeah, sweaty? Yeah, I was a little nervous. So you got to do it live over Zoom and, uh, but. Basically, you're working for that kind of stuff, and then we have different assignments. Kind of, it was the it was the Motley Fool University for analysts. Uh, so it's kind of like fun summer school if you actually if you like investing. It was nice, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Um, but stories that we didn't get to discuss while we were gone, we've got like what six or seven here. Yeah, basically the big either it's like a trend from the summer or a huge news story that we didn't get to talk to talk about that. Everyone's still talking about now. So an example is like Nikola, uh, which yeah. is quite timely because today there's a big blow up. But yeah, there was a there's probably a bunch of stuff that we're missing on here. But the first one we have is basically the whole year of IPOs was pretty successful, mm-hmm. um, unless I'm missing any big ones. But we had Unity, Snowflake, JFrog, Big Commerce, Encino, Agora, and Lemonade. Those are those are just a few of them. Airbnb supposedly real soon, right? Yeah, I mean, Procore is one that I've obviously talked about and want to. I'm excited to see them on the mm-hmm. open market. Um, but yeah, those are, and there's still supposed to be some good ones coming out soon. But all in all, very successful year. And I'm curious if it gives you any signs of like froth. Because some of these also, yeah. it was successful, but it depends who you're looking at. Like if you're looking at the investment banks, yeah, great year. True. 
True. But they if you're looking at Bill some... Gurley. <laughs> yeah, Bill Gurley was probably not having a great but... summer. It's kind of like that, whatever that, the Arthur thing with the fist that yeah. LeBron James would always do. But it seems like, I don't know, the SPACs are really what Gives were kind of the frothy stuff. I know that Chamath kind of led that, and he seems like he's doing fine. He invests in kind of bold things. But yeah. the SPAC thing feels just gimmicky. The, the IPOs seem pretty standard. And it's nothing compared from what – I didn't live through 1999, but from what people are saying, it's not even close to the mania. It's like 10% of the mania of 1999. Hmm. And one question I have here, any like – you probably saw these come you know, across your Twitter timeline or you're watching something about them or maybe even reading the S1. What one of these companies, Unity, Snowflake, all the others, were you like, all right, this is a great business. We need to look at it further. Yeah, it was hard because – once like people on Twitter catch on too fast, I almost like um, omit it. Like I'm like, this yeah. is not. I, I don't want to touch it because so it's consensus. You Snowflake. Know? Yeah. So Snowflake, I really didn't look into that much, and we talked about it on the show today. So if you're hoping to get some analysis, don't worry, you will. Um, but Unity was probably the number one that I looked mm-hmm. at. Really intriguing, and then Encino is also really interesting. The, really, it's just so like. It, it deters you when the first day it jumps like 150%. What does Encino think, do? They're like banking software, so they help okay. banks write loans, and it's a long – but it totally uproots the whole workflow system for a bank. So it's a long sales process, kind of sticky, okay. um, big clients, that kind of thing. Um, all right, other news. Oracle officially took their stake in TikTok. I didn't read too much into this, and honestly, I don't care. Am yeah. I the only one? I was going to ask, does it matter? What from the whole summer, like this has been a thing. I think before I left, it was kind of a, like turning into a big deal, and then in July there was a what? There was a lot of controversy about shutting it down. Yeah, like Walmart was gonna buy it. I mean, it just like there, and then there was yeah, we're gonna shut it down. There's a lot of government involvement. It was all tricky, and it was hard to like trust any headlines. Right. It feel it felt trade warry, like the same trade yeah. war headlines. Does is that what you were thinking this summer? Yeah, and it just. I don't know. I just didn't care. We like I don't. I've never used TikTok, and I know it's flashy and people like it, and it's like got a lot of adoption, like 500 million users or something like that. But it just feels, I don't know. Like like I'm not buying Oracle because of this. Oh no no no! It, they're just all they get is to use Oracle Cloud. It's not a. And there was a joke that all the engineers are going to be so disappointed when the the head CTO or chief technology officer is going to have to say. Yeah, we're going to have to transition this entire operation from AWS down to Oracle Cloud. You guys ready? We're going to be spending so many hours on this. It's going to be weeks and weeks of transition, maybe even a year of all that. Um, Portnoy also took over the whole financial community, so yeah. that was big. That's uh, In terms of things that I wasn't expecting in 2020, that might have been number one. Was he? Per- Do you think he was like the bomb that lit the whole day trading gambling style fire that just propelled to make it five times as big as it has been? Or do you think it's like a less of a deal than the media is saying where it's just kind of he's on these videos and it seems like it's right in your face, but it's honestly not that many people are doing it. I Okay, I don't think it's as big of a deal as people made it. Like I, I read a number, Citadel Securities said that 20% of stock market activity on average comes from retail investors. So in that regard, I actually don't think it matters that much but 
I think people were just so offended that he came at like Warren Buffett, and they're like, "This guy's oh, a yeah. newbie!" Like, like yeah, yeah. how you know? And they didn't know his gimmick; they like didn't know his shtick. Okay. And so it was like a shock to the system for everyone. But yeah, he's like a professional troll. So that's kind of you gotta just, just basically if he had sold to like you just ignore him. You know what I mean? Like if he's coming after your business, he's not doing it seriously. And it came at a perfect time when we all needed entertainment. Like him on CNBC was great. Like. It was yeah. if you're if you're looking at it like it's funny, it was fun to watch. Yeah, it's not. You should be watching CNBC for uh, investment advice. It's basically a financial entertainment network. Yeah, point. and I mean, I don't know. Like people were bored; they didn't have sports. I feel like they just migrated to stocks. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the feeling is that when sports get fully back, which they basically are now, that a lot of people probably are going to transition back to watching sports and sports yeah. gambling. Okay, so Nicola is also a fraud. Um, do you want like a bit of a summary here? Yeah, I mean, I, today it seems like there was a huge news dump of what actually happened this whole summer because I left and people were so excited. It was kind of a concept thing, almost like Virgin Galactic. Um, they went through, they became public through a SPAC in the same deal, and the thing just totally imploded. Yeah. Um, Trevor Milton's out. So. Yeah, so earlier this month, for anyone that wants sort of the thumbnails here, earlier this month, Hindenburg Research published a report calling Nikola a fraud, essentially. In that report, it was cited that one of their videos where their like new truck, their badger or whatever, was driving on its own, but it was actually just rolling down a hill. Um, Trevor Milton immediately took to Instagram Live to refute these claims and was super vague in his responses. So, like, there was no, like, he wasn't, like, he didn't actually refute him. He was just, like, pissed that they actually came out publicly and did this i saw people comparing it to elizabeth holmes is that what it felt like or i mean i wasn't around for the theranos thing but anyway uh then today or was it yesterday he randomly resigned and then there was this massive dilution of the share structure right they have this long like this 53 million yeah, there's a whole, uh, i don't know exactly if that's the whole part of the deal but i saw like a headline about that but he, they're probably trying to get him out of the company, sort of like an Adam Newman situation, although it doesn't seem like he was – it's weird that he would resign, right? Yeah, okay. This guy smelled like a fraud from a mile away. And True. you know what? This, If anything, Nikola gave me a whole bunch of hope to, that I could detect frauds early on because even when it first came out and there was all the hype, didn't you just feel like it was like bullshit? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but the last newsletter we wrote uh, for the Substack, I said that don't follow a story and don't invest just in a story. And I used Nikola as that because it seemed like it was only a story stock trying to just go get momentum with headlines and not actually putting up real numbers. Also, he 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 refuted the claims on Instagram Live. Like, yeah, it's tough. If you're trying to like it, he checked every box. Okay, no revenue. Um, just renderings, essentially, of a truck that could be. Uh, yeah, now Elon has the entire market share of renderings, or Tesla and SpaceX do. He's very paranoid with short sellers. Yep. I mean, it, it's like an innate – it's in human nature to be able to, like, sniff out bullshit, and I felt like this one a lot of people knew early on. So did he do anything this summer that's worse than, like, Elon's Solar City um, acquisition plus the solar roof tile reveal, which has been uh, – like in court has been decided like under oath that it was totally a fake. Okay. So I, I would compare the solar roof tile thing okay. to the truck rolling down the hill because they were All both right. like proven to be fake. Um, 
Tesla at least does have a product and revenue. That's true. That's so there's true. at least something there. Um, I don't know. It, it was it. It's similar. It's so f- like the whole EV space feels frothy. Like yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, Epic Games also started war with Apple. You kind of missed out on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Sweeney took to Twitter. I'm not sure on the whole details of it. Um, but basically, Epic and Apple are at war right now. And I'm I'm on Epic side. You're on Epic side. I was gonna ask like who's I know Apple's the big bad Goliath here. So yeah, and I've I've heard people have the take. It's like well, it's app like they built the platform for them to be on. They should get the they should get to set the rules. But it's like how yeah. long do you get to do that? Well, yeah, the, I think the big argument with setting the rules is that that's great as long as Apple's not competing with you. So then if they have Apple Arcade producing their own games. Then you're competing with someone on your own platform where you're setting the pricing structure. It feels very, very anti-competitive. It's kind of the deal that Spotify has, and it's the deal yeah. that people have with Amazon Basics competing, um, the first-party stuff versus the third-party stuff on Amazon.com. It's very similar to that. And I'm, I don't know any of the law details, but it feels like it's not going to hold up well in court, or at least it won't hold up well on Twitter, where people are going to definitely side with Epic. Yeah, I feel like Epic's definitely got the sort of the consumer behind them or the typical customer. Um, last do you think story. they're big enough though? Sorry, do you okay. think they're big enough though to have a chance? Because if someone like Netflix did this, they can just kind of they're big enough maybe to have some momentum. Spotify's a little bigger, but Epic are I don't know. It doesn't seem like they're they have enough juice behind this. You know, this lawsuit. I don't know. It, Maybe. I think they obviously could have done this earlier. So there must have been sort of a timestamp where they were like, we feel like this is the time where we can actually do it and have and have sort of a meaningful or like a real chance at it. Yeah. Or the risk reward. And maybe people love Fortnite. I don't know. People do. And it's becoming sort of of a good medium to get your message out there. I mean, they had the whole basically attack on Apple through Fortnite and Mm -hmm. all the customers see it through Fortnite's eyes. So. I don't know. Uh, last story, Teledongo merger. Are we okay Te- with that name? Te- Teledoc and Livongo. I don't think they called it Teledongo, but that <laughs> they would be – They should have put that in the uh, SEC filing, whatever it was. <laughs> I would laugh if they um, had that name, name and it would be some great <laughs> jokes potentially, but I hopefully they don't actually make it that name. Okay, but the basics of it is that Teledoc and Livongo um, – which are basically the two primary players in virtual healthcare, right? Well, they're different. So virtual – Teladoc is the main virtual healthcare, basically the platform where you can connect with your doctor or uh, therapist or a few other things through your phone or your computer without actually having to meet them. Livongo, aren't they internet-connected devices for like diabetes and things like that? I don't yeah. really know that much about Livongo. And they've branched out from diabetes. I know they're, they're sort of trying to take like – the whole health aspect, but yeah, their main bread and butter is the diabetes platform. That they it's have. like, the, yeah, they're more internet connected and then they're data powered, like diabetes and chronic care solutions, correct? Yeah, and a lot of people sold on this. I saw, yeah, some investors we respected, like Simon Erickson, uh, who we've had on the show before, and then someone like what, Peru Saxena, they were very upset as Lavongo shareholders. For the share price, there was a lot of you know noise about that kind of people you know not very happy with it. it, or maybe were they just shocked? I think it was the optics of like they thought Livongo was smaller, had all this room to run, right? And it and it's almost like the optics like Livongo management knew we're a little overvalued. We might as well merge and make this thing legit. Mm-hmm. And it's like 
management was admitting that they're overvalued by doing that. I think that was poor, like sort of what the retail investors saw. But it feels to me like they're getting a bigger slice of the same – like it makes the chances that they succeed higher in my opinion. Yeah, and they're definitely talking about the cross-sell over to all of Teldoc. Um, they have, what, 70 million users? I'm and, not sure. Uh, you can, I think they have 70 million users, or not users, like registered subscribers through their insurance providers or Medicare, things like that. Do you think, though, that the merger made sense at all? I think it makes sense um, just from the overview. I need to know more about Livongo in general, though. But what did you think? Um, I mean, if you're, like, industry-wise, yeah, there's synergies. But I mean, if and they that, can... not jokingly, there might actually be synergies just because they can sell with the same salesperson using, you know, selling both products at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. We got to do some more digging into it. Maybe we'll do an independent show on it. Definitely, um, yeah. Okay, so that's going to do it for our stories. Next up, we have our interview with Tim Byers. Um, this was great. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything particular that you uh, thought was interesting? Uh, definitely the talking about the three individual stocks, Snowflake, Elastic, and Fastly. We know those names in general, and we kind of hear those buzz, buzzwords about them. But Tim was able to make it so I actually understood what each of those companies did and what those value propositions were to their clients in a way where someone that's not in computer science can actually get it. So I thought that was great. All three of those companies seem they're very pricey, but yeah. we were talking mainly about the businesses, which that was the best part. I think I learned a lot about those three companies. The other thing is he isn't like a developer at heart or anything like that. He just – something that I found kind of inspiring was he just put in the hours to become a really good software analyst. Like he just studied tech, and his answer to the last question that we always ask was really good. So I'd mm-hmm. stick around for that. Um, so yeah, here you go. All right, today we are welcomed by Tim Byers. Tim is a senior analyst and a lead advisor at The Motley Fool. A bit of a background this summer, I interned for The Motley Fool and like the first two weeks, I had a whole bunch of questions about software companies and every single time I asked, they, everyone would say, go talk to Tim Byers. And so I didn't know who Tim was, finally got to talk to Tim Byers, asked him a bunch of questions and I swear he has all the answers. So uh, we get to ask him some questions today. Before we get into software and company-specific questions, how did you get your start in the world of investing? When did you begin? Wow. I mean, it's, a, uh, it's great to be here with you guys. And uh, yeah, it was great to have you as a summer intern, uh, Ryan. So I have a weird background. And um, I, I don't know that you should take the path that I took. But here's how it happened. So I started investing um, in high school, but on paper. So I was in what was called the stock market club. And really what we did, we competed. At that point, I was living in California. I was living in Southern California. We'd moved from New York to California. So I went to high school and graduated from high school in California. And I had, I I got hooked because we were in this club and we came in something like number four in the state. The problem was that my strategy was to pick a lot of penny stocks and some of them hit and they went to the moon and that was probably pure luck, but I was completely hooked by that point. So when David and Tom Gardner wrote the original Motley Fool investment guide back in, I think I got my copy in like 95 and I had started my career coming out of graduate school in 93. I was working in PR and, and marketing 
I read that book and it just, you know, I, I just got fever sweats. Like I was all in. And by, by the time um, around 2000, I applied to the fool for the first time, but I definitely was not ready. I did not have any meaningful experience because I was a marketing and communications grad coming out of college. I did, had no formal financial training whatsoever. So after that, I started, um, I started at the Fool in 2003, but I spent the years between 2000 and 2003 making my biggest investment mistake, which was selling Amazon at $7 a share. Oh, and yeah, bad. it was just brutal, right? Um, and I spent, I basically sold all of the shares that I had. I just kind of did hobbyist. I just dabbled, sold everything, uh, went to cash. And I spent two years reading everything I could, including at the Motley Fool, started doing financial models, everything. I just devoured everything I could. But during that period, I also had a lot of work behind the scenes in um, marketing and PR, but for tech companies. And so that's sort of how I started to meld things together. So when I applied to The Fool, the first thing I wrote about was this tech company that you may or may not know called Akamai. So I wrote a, I wrote a story about Akamai uh, as my application to be a freelance writer for The Fool, and they bought it. And wow. I've, been there, I've been there since. Nice. And you have done a ton of writing. Um, how has that sort of shaped your investing style? And I mean, does it help you in sort of your thesis development process? It does. I think it, I think it forces clarity, especially if you have to be brief. If you have to be brief and fast, then you better know what it is you want to say uh, before, before you start. So there's in every 300 word article, there's at least 15,000 words of research and work that goes into condensing that into 300 words. So I think it, I think if you want to be a great investor, I mean, I, this is not my piece of advice for, you know, novice investors. I have some, a different piece of advice for that, but if you want to invest, like if you want to get clear about being good as an investor, you should practice the discipline of writing out what it is you believe either about that business, about a market, about something, if you could do that, even if it's just in a journal format, I think it will, I think it will force clarity. And I've got something like, I don't even know anymore, maybe 8,000 articles at The Fool over the years. Wow, it's a ton. Do you still do a lot of writing? No, because on the, on the side of the business that I'm on now, now that I'm an internal employee, um, it's, it's not frowned upon, but it's just, you know, we have the contractors to do writing for fool.com. And then those of us who are working on like the portfolios or working on ideas for different services, that's got to be our focus. So it's, it's not frowned upon, but I do write like in cloud disruptors, which is the, the product that I work on primarily. Uh, I write the quarterly letter and I write the monthly letter. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so you mentioned this before that you were working in technology marketing. Uh, what else has pulled you towards investing in software or at least focusing on that uh, in your work? I found that I got, um, I, I would say I got so interested in technology and I kind of learned, I learned the language and which is, 
it's a little bit weird to say, but I think of, I think of technology and particularly uh, investing in technology is like learning a foreign language. I would agree. So, with that. I would agree with that. I would agree with that as well. Would you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because so when I was, you know, probably not that much older than you guys, and I had started at this agency, I used to stay late, and um, your audience will probably not remember <laughs> these names because these magazines. I'm not even sure how many of them exist anymore, but we used to have like this rack of magazines that I could pull off. So I'd pull off the copy of InfoWorld. Open Systems Today, Linux Systems Journal, and I would just devour these these magazines. And I was like, I don't yet know what this means, but I know I'm going to learn it if I keep reading this. So it was like an immersion exercise. Like, and as I did that, I started to get clear on it, and I started talking to people, and that's how I learned the language. And so I got really super curious. So when I started investing and writing about stocks, I knew that I knew the lingo which meant that I could write and I could get paid writing about stuff that other people were like, you know, I don't know yeah. what that is, you know? And so it, it was a way for me to get paid, to be as, honest. As someone that struggles with the terminology, there's definitely that barrier. You've got to understand the language if you're going to be able yeah. to write about tech. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least the super like technical companies, kind of like the cloud ones we're going to mention yeah. later. Uh, but specifically with software, what are the, some of the primary metrics when you're actually going to invest that you pay attention to and maybe some of the SaaS ones that you pay attention to that people talk about a lot? Yeah, I mean, almost all of those companies use two different, it's sort of two sides of the same coin, but there's a dollar-based net expansion rate and a dollar-based net retention rate. The only difference between those two is a... Um, really the the major difference is that if you're using a retention rate you include in the numerator everybody that churned so if you were trying like if restaurant comps like if you ever analyzed a restaurant you're basically taking the same sales by square foot from the restaurants that were open over the same period you don't add in the new restaurants because then it's not a fair comparable. It's not comparable store sales. It's like store sales. Right. Uh, so comparable store sales, that's an expansion rate. I had this many stores. That's what they did last year. That same group of stores, here's what they did this year. That's an expansion rate. Same group of software customers. What did they do year over year? A retention rate is I had this many software customers. Now I have why many software customers year over year, how many dollars between here and here were spent. And so I include all of the ones that churned. And so where that is really useful is for a company that's dealing with a lot of small businesses. Like you really don't want an expansion rate for say like Shopify because it deals with so many small businesses, it's going to churn. What you really wanna know if you're analyzing Shopify is, what's the dollar spent versus year over year. That's why gross merchandise volume is such a big deal. That's another metric, but anything that relates to, to get to your question, Brett, like the idea is I wanna be able to discern a couple of things. The first is do customers really like this or not? Like if they really like it, then the odds are that you know they will, 
come back for more. And even if they're not generating cash flow today, they probably will at some point. So other metrics that these companies report a lot that I pay attention to are the number of enterprise customers that are paying at least $100,000 or more. You know, so, you know, Datadog has something like, I don't know, 11,000 customers, but it's about a thousand of them that pay over $100,000 a year. So that tells you a couple things. First of all, they do have a core group of customers that are really driving revenue. That's about 70% of revenue. And then their opportunity to grow is embedded in their existing customer base. That's not always a good sign. It could mean that they just really are terrible <laughs> at converting right, right. customers. Yeah. Or it is that they have, they have some real runway. So it, it kind of depends. You have to sort of mesh it together with other metrics, like a, an expansion or retention rate, but that's a big one. I, I would also say gross margin. Gross margin is a big one, especially if gross, gross profit is consistently growing faster than overall revenue, then just the business is getting more efficient. One last one that is kind of special to these businesses because so many are unprofitable is what's called the rule of 40. And I don't remember which VC firm came up with this, but the rule of 40 is basically this. You take the sum of the revenue growth rate and you add it to the operating margin. So let's say revenue is, so like Snowflake, which I know we're gonna talk about later, but Snowflake is one of those where the revenue growth rate is amazing. It's like a hundred and, I don't know, 30% last yeah, year, something least, like at that. At least triple digits, yeah. It's yeah. a triple digit you know, growth rate. The, mm -hmm. uh, the operating margin is like negative 60% in the most recent quarter. So the rule of 40 says, if that's a negative 60%, I want 40 in the positive. So this better be growing at 100% or higher, right? If I'm taking 100% growth rate and I'm taking 60% off the top, because it's a negative 60% operating margin, 40s left, that's good. It should be 40 or higher. And what history shows us is that if it is 40 or higher, and if it's growing, particularly if it's expanding, then that's a company that even if it's burning cash and unprofitable right now, it's likely to grow into a profitable and cash flow generating state. I saw on Twitter, um, it was basically a, one of those Warren Buffett memes. I don't know if you've seen this one where it's like the paper next to him and it was Chathan Pedagunta and he basically like on it, it said, this was after the snowflake investment from Berkshire. It said, cloud native architecture is an economic moat. And so I wanted to ask you about that. What are like the economic advantages of being cloud native? I mean, is it, that hard for legacy or incumbent players to migrate to the cloud? Is it like a really expensive process? What's the advantages there? It is an expensive process. It's harder to do if you are. So um, are either of you guys familiar with Splunk? Uh, not really. No, not vaguely, really. Okay. Vaguely. Okay. Let, let's just, let's use a generic example then. Yeah. Let's say you're a company that has traditionally sold software licenses, which means that I'm a salesperson. I call you up, say, hey, you know, Brett, Ryan, you know, I, I want to, um, you know, I want to sell you guys my software. Um, I know you need 100 seats. 
So let's sign a contract and I'm going to come, I'm going to bring in my consultants and we're going to install all that on your machines. And you say, okay, cool. All right, let's do this deal done. We've signed a one year agreement and I come in and I do all that. Well, now a year later, I have a new upgrade and I'm going to come in now and I'm going to do another upgrade. You're going to be down for a week while I come in and do that upgrade. And you're going to be like, that's, that's not great. That's, that's really not great. I don't want you to take my business down for a week. So that's why the cloud is so important. Never goes down. It's always up. You don't ever have to deal with those updates. So that's a big benefit of it. Now there's another business side of it. If I'm a, you know, if I'm a cloud provider, if I'm a provider of software and my software is delivered via the cloud, it's much easier for me to sell you a subscription because all you have to do is just, you know, buy the subscription. I'm just going to deliver it to you. You're going to access it over the web anyway. So there is no software that's transacted. You're just getting what you need. And that's better for me as a delivery mechanism. So it reduces friction in the sales process. That's what makes it so powerful. It really reduces friction in the sales process. I don't have to come and spend weeks installing software for you and you don't have to be down while I'm coming in and installing software. Okay. That, that does make sense. It's a huge advantage. Um, That's a big advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so specifically with the stocks though, they're all valued or I wouldn't say all valued, but on average, they're valued at high revenue multiples. I think right now we're at an oh average of teens, which is an all time high. Yep. What, I mean, obviously people are assuming high cash flow margins and high net margins at scale. What range or any sort of type of cash flow margins do you think these companies could achieve um, 30% as high as 50% or I mean, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. It's really hard to say. I mean, it's really hard to say, but if we were to take just the best of these companies in the world, if we were just to look at AWS as a, as a proxy, um, AWS is about a 30% operating margin, just that portion of the business. So if, if you considered that a proxy for the, for the cash flow margin, then 30% is like world-class. You know, it, it, we could fairly consider AWS a world-class business on its own. So a 30% free cash flow margin in a cloud business is world-class. Now, there are some companies that do say they can get there. Um, one that just went public, it's an open question as to whether or not you should believe this. So take this with a grain of salt. But during its roadshow, JFrog, the liquid software company, basically managing versions of software out in the yeah. world, um, said, we're going to hit a 30% free cash flow margin. So, you know, you choose whether or not you want to believe that. It's, it's certainly possible, but I think 30% is world-class. There are some others that are probably unsung, and there's one I'll talk about. You have a question for me about an under-the-radar company. I'll hold that one. Okay. But there, right, is right. Another, <laughs> there is another one that does say that they, they are getting there. They're getting there like close to 30%. And I might surprise you about which company that is. All right. And I saw that Zoom video. This might have been a freak quarter, but they had over 50% free cash flow margins. It's uh, incredible. That, that might have just been a fluke from the pandemic, but there may be some businesses that could be even higher. 
but you're saying like 30% seems like a good goal if you're kind of doing a valuation metric of what these companies could be producing in the future. I think, well, you know what I, what I think about that is what you should, if, when you're using history, I think you should look at what we've seen. Like you should look for evidence. And what we've seen is that 30% is possible. 50% is also possible, but look, I mean, Zoom had, you know, Shopify had an amazing quarter. Zoom <laughs> came along and said, hold my beer. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I've never seen that before. I've never seen a quarter quite like that. So do I want to believe that they can hit 50% margins? Sure. I would love it if we could, if we saw that, but uh, let's see some sustainability there first. Right, right. And I guess now we'll transition into the company specific ones. We're going to go over Fastly, Snowflake, and Elastic. Uh, sure. Those are three companies that we don't understand very well. And we think that a lot of sure. other people probably don't as well. So it could be good for, you know, the listeners out there. Sure. First thing we're going to do is Fastly. Uh, just start off. What do they do? Uh, maybe try for a non-technical definition. And why are investors so excited about it? Because they've had a great run over the last year. Sure. So um, let me ask both of you guys a question from your, from your family or friend. Did you ever get like starter tools? Did you ever get a starter toolkit? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Think of a starter toolkit as Cloudflare. These are all content delivery networks. Okay. So there's a broad category called a content delivery network, which is I watch my Netflix in order to make my Netflix come to me much faster, like I don't want any delays, any flicker in the screen, that video should be, it should be queued up and delivered very close to me, like a server or some kind of service in my neighborhood or at least within a few miles of me. So that's a content delivery network and Fastly does that, but so does Cloudflare and so does Akamai. And so Cloudflare is that starter toolkit, like gives you everything, it's nice. It's safe. I had one, you know, you're 18, you start screwing around with tools. This is the one I got a starter website. It's a new, it's a new thing. I want Cloudflare to do everything for me. So this is the one that's got the socket wrench. It's got the adjustable wrench. It's got the screwdriver. It's got the hammer. It's got the basics. It's all right there. Then Akamai is the mechanic shop. Like, okay, this is a very specialized toolkit because I'm working on exotic cars, you know, like this is, I need really super specialized tools and it's really expensive. And there's enough of these exotic cars in the world. There's enough super rich people in the world that I'm going to have a pretty healthy business because people will bring their Jaguars to me, you know, and right. there, that is, you yeah. know, that, that's, that's really industrial strength, like very specialized tools in the middle is I'm a homeowner. I, the starter toolkit isn't going to do it for me anymore. And there's going to be a bazillion jobs that I have to do as a homeowner. Fastly is my adult toolkit. This is, I got the workbench. I've got a good socket wrench kit. I got, I don't just have the adjustable wrench. I got real wrenches. I got multiple drills. I got multiple hammers. I got a plumbing wrench. I've got all of this stuff. So there, this market kind of segments this, content delivery market, it segments between the company's small businesses that are um, starting out, but they want somebody to handle everything. 
and they go to Cloudflare. Then they have multinational businesses and they have content delivery and security needs around the world. And they go to Akamai because Akamai has the biggest footprint, the most servers in the world. Fastly is by far the most functional and it's also the one that the most uh, needy businesses go to. Like the ones where the content changes so repeatedly that they really need something industrial strength. So, so is, that, is that why uh, it's an advantage for someone like TikTok, Spotify, or Netflix to use Fastly? Yes, that, it's okay. why TikTok uses them. It's yeah. why the New York Times uses them. Um, and, and it's why we use them at The Motley Fool. So okay. um, it, lots of, the, the major advantage to Fastly is because that toolkit is so rich, you start figuring out as you go along new ways to use it which so, is why the, re the retention rates and expansion rates are so high. Go ahead, sorry, so I interrupted as, you. No, no, it's fine. Um, so as uh, over the life of the business, you talked about how the smaller businesses tend to start with like Cloudflare and then for the households or the expensive cars, they're either at Akamai or Fastly. Do you see them as they grow switching or if you start with Cloudflare, do you kind of tend to just stay? You'd probably, if you started with Cloudflare, you have an incentive to stick around as long as you reasonably can. Okay. But I also see these markets as fairly distinct. Like that fat middle is going to grow a lot. And it, the way this market shapes up, which makes it very interesting, is you don't know you need a CDN until it's painful. And then you know you right. need it. Right. So you don't like, it's not something you start with, you know, necessarily unless somebody told you you needed it. So when the pain gets too extreme, that's when you go to, like the Times, the New York Times, they went to Fastly because Akamai failed them. Oh, wow. Is it difficult to switch? Like, is that a painful process? It would be hard to switch. It, it's definitely not something that you take lightly. And Fastly is a pretty advanced toolkit. And just imagine, like, if you were to optimize your entire website you know, you'd be making some changes. Like you'd, you'd need some help to get that done. So it wouldn't be fast. Um, pardon the pun there. But, but Fastly <laughs> yeah. does have about a little, like 270 of these very large customers of, a, of an overall customer base. It's just about 2,000. So, you know, they've, they've, got a, they've got a pretty robust footprint of customers, but it's not the same. Like, Cloudflare has more customers and so does Akamai. The ones that have the biggest problems go to Fastly. Okay. And you explained this a little bit, but they don't have very many customers. Like you just said, what value do they provide Fastly um, that yep. would warrant someone paying so much for their services every year? Yeah. So a couple things. Um, if you are for a company like the Motley Fool, but just in general, the, the first thing you want is if you have any kind of dynamic content, if you're Netflix, if you're the Times, any kind of media company, or if you're doing any kind of e-commerce, um, you want that to be fast and you want it to be secure. And the greater the distance between where you are encountering a customer and the point at which you execute some kind of transaction or deliver some kind of value is, is important. So you probably do want a CDN. So let's just take an example. You're buying something. If uh, you know my business 
happens to be in St. Louis and you're in Washington um, and I, you're going across the country in order to execute a transaction, it's really not that long before you get frustrated at showing up at my store. So you want to be able to see things immediately. But there's another value to it. Because you're on Fastly, I may be able to determine, hey, this is bread again. So I will give you a, a customized experience. Fastly will allow you to do that. Um, I, I may be able to figure out if somebody is spoofing you, you know, or phishing because they're, they look like you, but they're really not. And they're attacking my website. Fastly will detect that and block it before it gets to my main network. So there are multiple ways this thing adds a lot of value to, uh, to, to a company, you know, who, who uses this, particularly an online business. All right. That, I think that does make a lot of sense. I think you're, you're making some headway. We're getting this a little bit. Uh, last question on Fastly. Uh, they just acquired Signal Sciences, I think for $775 million or somewhere around there. What do they do and how is it going to integrate into Fastly's business? Because they talk about security, API protection, stuff like that. Yeah. So Signal Science is part of the... Fastly is, um, is trying to make a pretty big bid in, in security. And so Signal Science helps them with that. Uh, there are different ways that, that you can get, a, get attacked in, inside of a network. You can compromise different elements. You can uh, spoof different types of different parts of the network. Signal Science is part of a toolkit that exists out at what we call the edge. And so if you thought about um, a, a network, you know, the internet is a giant network and the edge of that network is basically, it's, it's that. It's, it's, a, it's a phone, it's a device that I'm talking to you on. And so we wanna be able to protect all of those things at the source. And so signal science is gonna help with that. It'll look for signals that something is wrong here and we need to act, we need to throttle some traffic. So um, if, if you have it, an overall network and you're using Fastly, Fastly's out on the edge, it's like the outer moat and it's seeing everything that's happening that's coming in and trying to get into your company. And it'll say, oh, that's not right, we should stop that. And it can automatically see that's wrong, let's stop it. And we stop the threat before it even gets into the network. So signal science is part of a suite of tools that Fastly is using to get smarter about being secure at the edge. Does that make sense? No, I think that does make sense. Yeah, yeah no, it seems like it would integrate pretty well into what Fastly already offers. You probably have to know what the exact tools do, but on its face, I think that does make a lot of sense, at least if they got them for the right price. Right. Um, okay, I'm gonna switch to Snowflake here, and I'm sure this is sure. one that a lot of listeners are looking forward to. So. I, I am the layman and all I've, uh, you know, if I look on their S1, all I yeah. see is a bunch of data buzzwords. Yep. As someone that does not understand the terminology whatsoever, I need an explainer. Can you explain as if you're talking to a five-year-old, what exactly they do? I think you're, I, th I think you're, I think you're smarter than a five-year-old Ryan, yeah. but I, I'll give you that credit, but I will say it, it is difficult. And the best way to think about it is, um, if you're in any business whatsoever, when you collect information on a customer or you collect information about a series of transactions, you've got data. And there are two types of data. There's the data you need to say, um, 
handle a transaction, you know, there's the, there's just basic transactions data or even better. Like, let's say you were playing a game and you're, player record and your score and all that stuff that gets handled in a database but it's all done in real time in order for the game to operate it has to have some kind of database snowflake is a different kind of database it's where you take everything it's basically it's the past you know in the game the database in the game it's like in the present it's like I, here's the data and the database is feeding back and forth with the game and making sure that it's constantly up to date so you have a good experience. So your character doesn't just suddenly disappear in the game that you're playing. The database has those records. Snowflake is um, basically like a giant filing cabinet. Um, although I don't know that we use filing cabinets anymore, but if we were to think about filing cabinets, like, you know, that's an archive, like just a massive archive. We just have an endless archive and we're putting data in there and we want to be able to tag it. We want to be able to retrieve it. We want to be able to find what we want. But we want that filing cabinet to have a couple of features. The first feature we want is we want anything to go into it. So if um, it, it shouldn't like just fit in a folder, it should be like, you know what? If I want to put a basketball into this you know, filing cabinet, I can do it. If I also want paper in there, I can do that too. So Snowflake is this unlimited, really flexible filing cabinet, and I can get anything out of it that I want very, very quickly. And all of this is hosted in the cloud, and it, it works inside any cloud. And that's a big, big advantage. So if you thought about it as um, I, you know, that same filing cabinet, um, I could get that anywhere I wanted. So let's say I had three different offices and um, there's a filing cabinet in one office. The same exact filing cabinet is at the, the other office and it's also in the third office. So anytime I go to one of my offices, I got what I need. It's there. You know, it's not like I go to a different building and my file cabinet is gone which is what happens if, if you had your data in one public cloud, like say AWS, then you're only gonna get what you need in the AWS buildings. If you go into the yeah. Google Cloud building, you're not gonna, you'll get the Google Cloud stuff, but you're not gonna get the AWS stuff. Snowflake is, I go into the AWS building, got what I need. Go into the Google Cloud building, got what I need. Go into the Microsoft Azure building, still got what I need. It exists across all of the clouds. So it's an archival system. Um, it's really complicated, but the term for it is called data warehousing. Uh, you can also use it as a data lake. The difference between a data lake and a data, this is really stupid, <laughs> by the way, but Great I just- photo. Yeah, for that stuff, yeah. It, 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 this is literally how it works in tech. So a data lake just means Think of it, it's just a blob, it's amorphous, it's just a big body of water. I wanna throw anything in there, doesn't matter what structure it is, could be an image, could be a file, could be an audio, it could be a metadata log, like the logs of what happens on your website, which is like really geeky, all of that, just throw it into the lake and it can, it can all be stored right there. Then there's another part of Snowflake, if you want to choose to make it that way, said, you know what, 
I know what data I want to analyze later. So I'm gonna set up some structure. So like a warehouse, like inside of a warehouse, like where we store like goods, an Amazon warehouse, you would imagine that has defined shelves, really clear spaces where everything belongs and it's super organized. That's a warehouse. So basically, if you are um, a data warehouse is just like a regular warehouse. It has a structure. I can put certain things in it and everything is very, it's very clear where everything belongs. Okay. And so Snowflake can be the place where you store everything. It can also be the place where once you decide what you want to store and retrieve later, you can actually make inside Snowflake a data warehouse and say, okay, all of these contracts by year, yeah, I want them in this data warehouse instance. So I, I, have a, I bought Snowflake, I have it across any cloud that I want, and I have one part of it that's maybe a data lake, then I have another part that's like a data warehouse. So you could see the, the whole value proposition of this is if I'm a company, I have data, I wanna make use of it, it's much cleaner if I can do all this in the cloud, it's really good if I can do it in any cloud so I control the outcome. I don't have to depend on AWS. And it's even better if when I decide I wanna do something different with the data, I can just stand it up and do something new. I can stand up a new data lake. I could stand up a new data warehouse. I could do some machine learning and Snowflake is gonna charge me just like the phone company does. Just like they're gonna charge me for when I use it. So for anyone that thought, and this was me, um, of sort of the similarities between like Alterx and Tableau and a Snowflake, Snowflake is making everything really easy to find and really accessible, whereas they don't have a visualization component. They're not taking it and making it more actionable for the business. Right. You would have the, the way that those tools interplay would be Snowflake would be a source of information that you would express, visualize in Alteryx or Tableau. Probably more Tableau than Alteryx, but yes, those are you know those. That's the layer on top of Snowflake. So why do you think why do you think Berkshire took a stake? I mean, this seems atypical for their type of company. Yeah. I mean, what What do you think their thesis was? Or is it is it meaningful at all? Either like is it Yes, that's a good question too. That is a really good question, right? I mean, it's hard to say what their motivation is, but at the on the other end of it, um, I, just looking at it, it, it's very rare, guys, when a the technology and the business lines up so well. So let me describe what I mean. Um, this is going to get into the technical part, so I'll try. You stop me if I'm getting too technical, right. but this but this helps, I think to understand why this business is so beautiful to me. So the way that Snowflake works is it separates compute and storage. What that means is storage is, I got data, throw it into the lake, throw it into the closet. Compute is, I've got data, now I wanna do something with it. I wanna organize it and make something of it. Storage and compute, those two things are separate inside of Snowflake. The reason this is important is because the way Snowflake prices, and this is genius, and I really like this. 
they say it'll cost you next to nothing to put your data in Snowflake. You don't have to do anything with it right now. You don't need to pay the premium to compute with it right away. Just throw your data in here. So imagine, for example, like if you were out hunting for an apartment, to use an, an analogy here, and the landlord said, or you know what, even better, like office space, because you were starting a company and the landlord said like, you know what, Ryan and Brett, I will charge you a dollar to put your furniture in here. Don't right. worry about it. You got, sp I got you covered. Your space is set. Just put your stuff in and then you call me when you're ready to work. Like, would you take that deal? Yeah. yeah. 100% of the 100% of us would take that deal. Then what happens is you start working and you start earning money and you, okay, okay, we're in, we're working now. Like, great. All right. The meter's running. And now you get a bill at the end of the month for all of those days that you worked, but the, the space itself was almost nothing. It really didn't cost you anything. But once you started generating value from that space, Based, and in Snowflake terms, generating value from that data by running compute jobs against it, yeah. now you're paying money. And you know what? The unit economics on Snowflake to offer you that, that storage space is so low that they can afford to do that. But what does that do? It incentivizes you to get data into the system. And once it's in the system, what are the odds that data is coming out? Yeah. yeah. Pretty low. So it, it's a very smart, it's, it's a technical advantage, okay. but it also is a business advantage. And I, I don't know if Berkshire looked at that and said like, that's genius. But I looked at that and said, okay, that explains why this is growing so quickly. I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Ryan. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it sounds like a remarkable business, but I, I'd be remorse if I didn't ask about valuation because that's probably yeah. what most people are touching on. I mean, what advantage, I mean, I guess that pricing model might be an advantage, but what advantage or sustainable edge do they have that warrants the valuation they have now? And nothing warrants the current valuation. Okay. Let's just, <laughs> yeah. can we just say right there, full right. stop, yeah. full stop, nothing nothing in the world could possibly like the end of day one, my estimate of the price to sales ratio was 173.8. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to process that. Right. Yeah, so I can't justify the value. There is no advantage that is so fundamentally rich that it justifies 173.8 price to sales ratio. I just don't see it. Like right. where I looked at it, to be honest, is I ran a model on it. And I, I showed you this, Ryan, like how I did, like, what's the expected growth rate? Right. Like to get a 20% annualized return, what kind of growth would I need to see? Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and said, if this goes out at a $35 billion valuation, which was going to be high at the time, because remember, these, <laughs> their last private market Valuation was 12.4 billion. Yeah. You know, that's what, so they were going to go out at 20 billion. They ended up, they went out at way higher than that. But I looked at, at 35 billion, it had to go roughly between 48 and 50% annualized revenue growth 
over the next 10 years, which is high. But mm -hmm. in the S1, they said, we are not yet in our growth phase. When we get into our growth phase, our revenue growth rate will be 40% annualized, which is, I've never seen that before. So they're either dumb or they have a really good business. So that valuation at 35 billion felt like, okay, I could live with that. I, would, I, would I highly recommend people put millions of dollars in it? No, probably not, because it's still gonna be rich, yeah. but at least I could see it, but I can't see it at 173, there's no way. Yeah, I don't think many people can. It's probably a lot of uh, traders and it's kinda, seems like it's kind of a whole big thing. People are looking past the business, uh, but we'll get to the last uh, company here that we wanted to talk about specifically, and that is Elastic. Another sure. one that I've looked at, seen their investor relations page and said, I still don't get what they do. So can you explain? And I hopefully we get it because I think we got Snowflake and Fastly a little better now. This might be the most confusing of all the, the software <laughs> plays that I've read. At least, on. Yeah, at least to me and, and to Ryan. Uh, so, so what does Elastic do, um, if you can't explain? Well, let me see if I can try and simplify it. We already know what Google does. Right. Google searches the internet for meaning. Okay. Elastic searches corporate data for meaning. Elastic is for corporate data what Google is for the internet. Oh, okay. Huh. That makes so sense. It, it is um, the start. primary product here is called Elasticsearch. Yeah. And it is the technical term for this is basically it's an index engine. But really what it does, what it's attempting to do and Ryan will remember this, you know, we have this tool internally at The Motley Fool that we call Fool IQ, in which we can put uh, structure and labels and data around individual companies and we can put in, uh, you know, analyst, analyst takes on it. We could put, you know, certain features on it. We say, hey, this company has, you know, high ownership. And so Elastic helps us categorize all of that data, it, it, is, it's a, it helps us index and identify data that goes into a system so that's very easy to get meaning out of it. Uh, and it, so it, it is hard to understand. It, it really is complex and it's sold as a stack of software. But essentially the, the basics of it, if you understand that what Elastic is trying to do is give you a mechanism to put in corporate data, corporate data, and then index it in a way that you could get, you could derive meaning out of it. That's not the same thing as something like Alteryx or Tableau or even Snowflake. It's, it's different. It's basically, it was really built for real, just like messy data, stuff that has no structure whatsoever. And you really have to put some kind of index around it in order for there to be any meaning whatsoever. So like, you know, um, if you had recipes in a cookbook, like if you put a cookbook into Elastic, one of the things you could do is you could query that and say like, how many of these recipes have, um, give me an ingredient, something. Eggs. 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 How many of these have eggs? Boom, it pops right up. Okay. So it is, it's intended to create 
some kind of cross-referenceable intelligence out of data that you put in it. Then there are other tools in the Elastic Stack for actually expressing meaning. So something like Logstash, which is part of this Elastic Stack, is for taking logs. And a web log is, or metadata, again, stupid technical term, but like your website, mm-hmm. you know, you guys have a website for this podcast. There's metadata about that website. Metadata just means like, what is, you know, it describes what this website is. Okay. Who owns it? When was it started? How many hits does it get a day? You right. know, things like that. And we call that a log and we call that metadata. And so Elastic can pull some of that in and make meaning from those logs. And then they have this visualization tool that they call Kibana. And so you can take all this and anytime you have data that you're making meaning from, you can build some products around it. One of them is this visualization software. And then there are other use cases for Elastic. So again, making meaning from corporate data, right? Mm -hmm. Google for corporate data. If you can do that, what are the other things you could do? Well, if you can make meaning from corporate data, one thing you could do is say like, search for things that are outliers. So you might be able to have some hand in security. You know, you could say, oh, you know what? This data that we're getting from our network systems tells us that we may have an intruder in the system. That's called a security information and event management use case. Splunk does that too. Uh, You could also call it observability. I'm going to put all my logs from every network device inside of Elastic and let's see what happens. And so Elastic captures all that stuff and then it does what's called observability and it observes everything and it looks to see where problems may be. So this is super flexible. That also happens to be what Datadog does. So the problem with the, the beauty of Elastic is also the problem with Elastic it collides with different companies. Um, like it's, okay. it's beautiful, but it collides with Datadog. It collides with Splunk. It collides with um, you know, other companies that make meaning of data. It doesn't collide with Snowflake because Snowflake is an archival system. Mm-hmm. But um, the beauty of Elastic is that developers love it because it's such a flexible tool. Like if you can make meaning of data and you have the tools to do it, you're going to make a lot of developers really happy. And so that's why it's so popular. Okay. So if you had to choose one of the last three companies that we just talked about, so Fastly, Snowflake, or Elastic, off the bat, who would it be? And you it's can, gonna, sorry, you can include valuation. You could also say like the business in general. I know they are both, they trade at different, you know, price frame, like uh, valuation valuations. Yeah. All things being equal, including valuation, it's, it's fastly because I don't believe I prefer companies whose opportunity is dramatically misunderstood. And I believe that fastly is unbounded in the way that snowflake is, but I, I also don't think that's widely understood because Fastly is very under the hood. It's a toolkit and it's only as good as the use cases yet that you discover. But what I'm finding, the more developers I talk to, um, people are discovering that this thing can do 
just about anything. And it is very similar. The more that you use it, the more that Fastly earns. And so I, I think it's unbounded. I, I really like it. I love Snowflake. I hate the valuation, yeah. but boy, do I love that business. Yeah, it seems too many people liked it. Uh, so we talked about Elastic, Snowflake, and Fastly. Are there any other maybe under the radar SaaS names? I know there's a ton out there that you think people should maybe go and try to research that you think are interesting. Uh, this is one that I own. Okay. So this is the one that is gearing towards a 30% free cash flow margin, but isn't there yet, which is Box. Um, Box is very unloved because it feels like the kind of company that it's just a file storage system. That's all it is, just a file storage system. Who cares about this? Is file storage in the cloud? There's people no advantage Google, there. People think that Google's just going to eat their lunch or something, right? Exactly. You know, I, nobody cares about this. Um, they ha uh, to be fair, um, they've had kind of a rough go of it because they've been in a transition period. They've had to work to get there. Uh, they've really been kind of plotting to get to the point where they're what's called FedRAMP compatible, meaning that the federal government can use the box software in the cloud for different agencies. And they really had to work hard to get there. It looks like they're finally getting there. They had like this four year roadmap where if they could get there and they can start getting the biggest accounts instead of trying to get lots of users the way Dropbox does, mm -hmm. Box is trying to get the biggest accounts. And if they can get there um, and, and they can do it in a secure way, including the federal government, they believe they can get to, pardon me, a very high uh, free cash flow margin. I think it's possible. I really like the culture. I really like the the co-founders. The founder and the you know one of the founders and the co-founder um, are is the CEO and the CFO. C CEO is Aaron Levy. Um, mm -hmm. Very good business, and it's just different. You know, Box is, is essentially an embedded file system inside other cloud tools, and it's in a lot of the big ones. It's in Salesforce. It's in Microsoft. It's in you know, tons of them, um, but it, it's, it's not the highest margin business and it's just been kind of plotting slow to get, get to scale and especially to achieve this FedRAMP, uh, you know, compatibility. But I think if they get there, they could get that free cash flow margin. If they do, where they're trading right now is completely unfair. Right, okay, okay, that's interesting. I, I never really looked into that, yeah, so. Box for any listeners. Uh, that's ticker. I'm guessing B O X. B O X. B O X. All right. Last two wrap up questions. I'll yep. hit the first one. Um, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? I really do. Um, I really do hate. You know, buy low, sell high. I don't like um, the David Gardner version of that, which is, you know, uh, a buy. You know, buy high and you know, or buy low and then keep buying and keep buying high. I don't really like that that much either. I like, you know, buy once or buy multiple times and just hold relentlessly. Right. Like I would rather, I would rather sell never entered into the equation yeah. if I could help it. Like if, if sell was never part of the decision process of investing, I think we'd all be better off. And then they've done studies that show that people are way worse at identifying when to sell than when to buy. Like people can have skill in buying, 
but fund managers have had a really poor time selling. So maybe if you just take that out in general, it could help you out. I mean, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Last question. All right. Yeah. Last question. We asked this to everyone. Uh, what is one piece of advice you'd have for anyone starting out in the business or investing world? So is this, I, I have a question. I hate to answer a question with a question, but is this for people who want to get into the investing business or who just want to invest? Uh, could be either. Could be yeah, either. For, yeah. yeah. For typically for people that are already investing. Okay. So who are already investing and may want to consider the business of investing long-term. Yeah, right. Long -term. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would say my, my best piece of advice here is to, you know, a lot of people start as a generalist. I wouldn't necessarily do that. I would say, what is it you are naturally geared towards? I was very interested in tech, so I just went after it. And I made, uh, I made a niche out of studying software, deep tech, hardware, because I was just really interested in it. The, you know, you're not going to get stuck. You're not going to get pigeonholed in an industry. If you get good at analyzing a particular industry, that skill is transportable. You can learn the mechanic. If you can learn the mechanics of one industry, you can learn the mechanics of any industry. If you can learn the mechanics of software, I promise you, you can learn the mechanics of banking. Um, and if you can learn the mechanics of banking, you can learn the mechanics of software. So I don't think it's a bad thing to specialize early on just for the, the intellectual discipline of learning how a business works. Learn how money flows through a business. Forget, I mean, the financial statements are important. Learn how to do that. But if you learn how a sales funnel works and how money gets from, how it gets exchanged, how a deal works, how long it takes to do that deal, what kind of money do they get? What are the incentives to make a deal? And then how that company can grow and compound over time. If you learn that early on in, in one industry, you will have the tools to learn how to do that in another industry and then another industry and then another industry. And you will continue to be able to repeat that discipline. So um, that's been my experience. Like you can, you can learn how to look at different industries by learning to master one. It's almost like this, uh, this great book for anyone who's interested in software investing. It's an old book. It's from I think 1993. It's called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And the whole idea of crossing the chasm is in tech markets, the way tech markets tend to work. A company that is growing, a startup that is growing, that learns to eventually cross the chasm into mainstream adoption starts by winning some early adopters with its technology, but then ultimately it has to find a niche, like some kind of industry problem that it solves. And then once it does that, then it starts transporting to other different industries and it gets some adoption. And once it has enough niches, then it makes the jump across the chasm and it gets closer to mainstream adoption. I think you can build an investing career the same way. I really like that. Yeah. yeah that was um, good. On an interview I listened to yesterday, Rory Sutherland said, if you go to a Thai Italian fusion place, you know, you're either going to get a bad Thai meal or a bad Italian meal. So focus drives quality. I, I, I like that theme. Um, okay. That's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for coming on, Tim. Really enjoyed it.
Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. All right. Welcome back. Thanks again to Tim Byers for joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, second half of the show, we got hot water now. Yeah. How, many, how many do you have? Uh, I got five. Um, yeah, what about you? Okay, I think I have four. Wow. So let me just pull it up real quick. Have a week. Yeah, so uh, you want me to go first or you want to go? You go ahead. Okay, go so FinTwit is in hot water for me. Why? Because um, it appears FinTalk is taking over. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, but is FinTalk the worst thing that's happened to finance since like Forex trading was introduced? Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Forex trading. People make a lot of money, but there's a lot of Ponzi schemes. A lot of, there could be some of that. There's also a lot of idiots that are a little in over their heads, including us. We I guess we did that, but... FinTalk, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cringy. I don't want to, there's no individual, like, people to call out, but it's, it's just, bad. it's pretty gross. I don't, I and don't like it. It's just such bad advice. Maybe we're getting, like, the wrong stuff. Maybe we're, they're only highlighting the shitty videos. Yeah, but investing isn't made for 20 second videos. That's just not how you invest yeah. well or learn about investing um, from 20 second videos. If you think you're going to become Warren Buffett from a 20 second clip of some guy in some fancy kitchen talking about, compound his money one percent a day um you're gonna be disappointed yeah um second one and some of these are not from like this most recent week but san francisco is in hot water this one's kind of real um apparently austin texas is like the new valley right according to twitter developers just leaving i and i have yet to read a good yeah anything good about san francisco in probably the last six months i'm sure it's still fine really I, I, I'm I thinking from the mentality that people have, it's probably going to be optimal to move to San Francisco in about three years. Yeah. It's going to be great. You I got, mean, hopefully like – We're going to be buying the dip on San Francisco. Yeah, I'd buy the dip out of San Francisco just maybe not yet. Maybe wait like three to five years, move down there. It's going to be fantastic. Pools are also in hot water. Um, the Onion, uh, which as we know is the highest form of journalism, released a mm-hmm. very important report titled majority of time in pool spent urging others to enter the pool yeah that's it's pretty accurate yeah this is a while back but i just thought it was a funny article. You, you're really liking the onion article there i mean they from the real headlines that are out there now i mean in the financial world and just the world at large they've had to put some extra effort in to make make sure people realize that it's not yeah. an actual real article that's an onion article um. Yeah, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. Climate change deniers have also had a rough year. Yeah. So they're kind of in hot water. For what? I mean, I've, I've been gone. just like the smoke, everything. Oh, like, I hate to break it to you, but it, it's, fires, a, it's a complex topic. Pictures, but the, the fire was tough. because the fire. I researched this heavily because I almost I was in the the mix of the wildfires. The wildfires are caused by forest mix, mismanagement everywhere. Basically on the West Coast, yeah. Hmm. Huh. So. Well, either way. But it is a, no, yeah. Don't don't give a score to climate change deniers. No, I mean they're not right, but it's in this instance they're not wrong. Okay. All right. What were your uh, hot waters? Uh, well, the market because today it was down. It opened down two point five percent, and I think it was because Tropical Storm Beta. That's the name. Just made landfall over Houston. Um, great timing. Great name for that. Uh, that seems like an ETF for like someone like from Instagram or FinTalk trying to pitch a smart beta ETF. Like this someone, is tropical storm beta. I saw an, I, I saw a tweet and it was like this is the ETF 
that's like all picks are based off weather forecasts and yeah, stuff like that. That's, like that's that. basically what we've got. Okay, what other ones do you have? Uh, the guy that was in charge of keeping hot dogs at a dollar fifty at Costco. You may have seen this. It was a viral um, screenshot from an article or a book. So the oh. ex CEO at Costco, in order, he was he really wanted the hot dog to be a dollar fifty, which is their deal to get a lot of people in there. And he said, "If you raise the price of the hot dog, I'll fucking kill you." That was a direct <laughs> quote. Great line, and it's really the <laughs> main proper management right there. The hot dog, the, the free samples, and then the gas being like sold below price. That's how you get people in there. Um, it okay. You know what? Yeah, I actually side with the co or the ex CEO on this one because yeah. that is like the greatest deal on earth. Yeah, one of it's them. it's amazing. It's amazing customer acquisition cost there. It's basically marketing. All right, <laughs> next one. This is a little serious. It's corporate bonds. There was a nice chart in the Financial Times about how over the last forty years creditworthiness has gone down substantially in the corporate debt markets. Uh, they had a nice charts of the A, like AAA down to C, uh, which if you're trading at C level, like C, like not even triple like B. C level? Like near the ocean? <laughs> they're about, they're, to, they're about to get drowned, yeah. They're literally about to get drowned. But there's a staggering amount of B-rated stuff, not even triple B or double B. You know this from the big short, right? How it goes, triple yeah. A, it's, you know. There's a lot, like, it was like, I don't know, half of it, maybe a third. It was a staggering amount. And if you're thinking like who cares because you're not like buying corporate bonds, remember that you might be buying stock in some of these companies that have the shitty debt yeah. on their books. So or the Fed will just save them just like Boeing or something, right? Yeah, it's possible. I'm still mad at that <laughs> even I, though that was this spring. I, Yeah, I just am torn between like what is the Fed doing and all right, just close your eyes and trust the Fed. Yeah, or just ignore it altogether. I think okay. that might be the best. Tune. My next one, I did have the wildfires, but they're, they the wildfires are in hot water because I'm going to get my air microclimate helmet. Did you see that? I did Looks see like it. a space suit, and the guy were in the, the, the business suits. It was – oh, man. Call me crazy. I think it could work. No, you're totally wrong. Okay. Um, fuck, Mary kill – uh, the theme here. Wait, is that your last one? No, no. Oh, uh, one more, one more. They're yeah. launching a water futures contract. Next is oxygen. I think as Barbarian Capital said on Twitter, <laughs> this just seems. I don't know. I would not want to be buying water futures. Like, dude, I got Flint. Like, it's like a forty percent yield. I mean, <laughs> like, isn't that just really like morally not sound? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like morals have gone out the window over the last, last two years. Yeah. Um, okay, fuck, Mary kill. The theme here is companies that thrived because of the pandemic. Okay. Um, so Zoom, Teladoc, and who's the last one? Uh, Peloton. Peloton. Ugh. I'm killing Peloton because I think there's a chance that they're – I don't know. I just don't – I feel like there's – they have a high ceiling but also a low floor. So I wouldn't touch them, and I don't know them well enough. Um, but yeah, I'm going to kill them. I'll marry Teladoc. I like the business a lot, especially with the combination of Lavongo. I think they're buying a lot of growth. Lavongo has to buy slower growth, but whatever, that can change. And I do think they're actually right where there's going to be a lot of synergies there, but I, do, I, I honestly have to research it further since I was off the grid for about three months. And then the last one is Zoom. I'll fuck Zoom just because that free cash flow margin number was so impressive. Like They had the sexiest earnings Maybe, I don't know, of all time, and the stock does reflect it, but yeah. Yeah, and like what if it continues – like what if next quarter 
Zoom posts another earnings like that. Like that, I mean, it's priced in. I don't know. That they said that last quarter, dude. I saw. Um, I wrote an article in 2019 that Zoom was the IPO to buy. I have not touched shares. You got to walk the walk. You can't just talk. I it. was talk. I was just talking the talk. Did not walk the walk. Yeah, I don't want to even look at what the numbers would be. Okay. Um, anecdotal evidence that I've just got are one. You, are you doing the same? What the fuck, Mary Kill? Oh, um, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I'd probably say the same there. Maybe, maybe Bang Peloton. Yeah. Swap it with Zoom, but I mean, Zoom's a good. Zoom's probably a more established business, in my opinion. True. Um, okay. Anecdotal evidence. Uh, story time here. So we, okay. like we mentioned, we are a business now. Um, and so we went office shopping and we got free rent for 2020. There was like a down payment, but free rent for 2020. How, and then it's rolling month to month. So basically commercial real estate is completely screwed. They're very desperate. Like how long does this last? Yeah. And there's no one in the office that we're in right now. And it's like a, whatchamacallit? It's like a WeWork basically, right? Yeah. With yeah, I guess I mean, it's just exactly I've never like, been in a WeWork, but yeah. I think it's a WeWork, but less fancy furniture, really. Yeah. Sure. Which is fine. I'll pay way less for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I only have looked at WeWork pictures, but sounds about right. I don't know. I mean, it just seems like how long can this go on for before some of these commercial real estate companies are well, going under? I saw an article in Bloomberg that uh, a CMBS, which is a corporate mortgage-backed security, MBS, like the uh, mortgage-backed mortgage mm-hmm. securities from the big short in the financial crisis, uh, there's one that's going pretty badly. Either I don't know if it can go bankrupt, but it's failing uh, pretty bad, mm-hmm. and there, people are worried about how that's going to impact the commercial real estate market. Uh, it, it doesn't seem great. I don't know anything about that market, but it seems pretty common sense that I would not want to touch it, right? Yeah, I'm, cu- I'm curious. The- a bit, like, we'll start to see people trickle in if people start coming back, but I haven't seen it yet. And so- I, th- I think there could be some opportunity if you had, if you were an expert in the market of that specific market, commercial real estate, and you had the guts and you ha- you thought you were smart. There could be a lot of opportunities to make. Some and the right money, time right? horizon. If you have the right time horizon, I think people will come back to the office. Maybe. But if you read Hastings, you think so. Yeah, he was I, I think he he's usually right. <laughs> so maybe. Yeah. Uh what was your anecdotal evidence? Anecdotal, I have two. Uh this one is just a quick stat here that I saw that I was really intrigued about. So did you know that kids under thirteen spend more time on Roblox than YouTube, Netflix, and Facebook combined? I've never used roblox so i don't makes you feel old yeah i mean i guess you know you're telling me it so i i believe it yeah yeah isn't that crazy (laughs) kind of have to yeah but i mean it feels like they're either spending the time playing the game roblox or they're either on like twitch watching someone play the game or on youtube watching people play the game so either way not youtube apparently youtube doesn't what they don't show it no i'm saying roblox is not it's like a game building toolkit too it's like what, like kind of like a Minecraft type of thing? Yeah, that's a decent analogy. I don't, I've never played it's it. It's easy to just kill time in those games. Yeah, so and I'm apparently not they're spending more time on that than YouTube, which is the biggest number. You could have taken you know Facebook they... out of there because no one under 13 is touching Facebook, but YouTube and Netflix, that's a big deal. Do you know like how Roblox gets monetized at all? Uh, no, but there was a Invest Like the Best podcast about it that I totally forgot how it all works, but if you want to, I think, I don't know, it was like, probably six months ago. Re-listen to that. 
Um, you kind of got the gist of it, but I just know surface level about the company. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. So there's that tweet. Uh, if you get to buy only three stocks for the next 30 years and then you cannot sell for any reason, um, what would they be? I thought that was a good discussion to have. I saw a lot of C limited on there, which I think is absolutely absurd. Like I get that it's a great business and people, they have a ton of momentum right now, but 30 year time horizon in a Southeast Asia for a company in a super competitive environment. I, I don't, I don't get it, but and who'd you pick again? Spotify, a little riskier, but I think they do have very stable long-term growth in a market that's whatever, you know, our Spotify pitch. And then I said, Altria, because everyone smokes very easy pitch. And then I said, Boston, Omaha, just because they're long-term capital allocators. And it's a bet on the business leaders that say they're going to be there for 30 years and not a bet on the actual company at the moment. Well, it's a bet on the company at the moment, but it's more of a bet on the business leaders. Yeah. I don't, I, 30 years is a long time. So if that's I'm gonna point. Do, if I'm going to do 30 years out, I'm going to do someone that's been around for 30 years prior because at least that means there's stability. Maybe, I guess Google isn't 30 years, but I might take no, Google. Google. Yeah, Google's a good bet. I'd say – Microsoft – I mean, Microsoft. Big, that, Star- that's maybe that's Starbucks. the bold thesis on big tech. Is that like maybe. no one knows who's going to be there in thirty years, but big tech probably will. Mm, I'd say Microsoft. And Microsoft and, and Google, I would say for sure. Yeah, Facebook. I'd have no idea. That's why I'm decently bearish on that. But that's my that's my two anecdotal evidence. Okay, well then that's going to do it. Thank you guys for coming back and listening. We also have an interview for next week. I'm not going to say who, but it's a it's a four way now. Should be yeah, should two be, guests. Yeah, should be a fun discussion. Less of an interview, more of a discussion. I think we'll we'll see how it works. Um, and you should probably say what our YouTube is, right? Oh yeah, the YouTube, the channel is what Brady. It's Chit Chat Money, right? Okay, yeah. Chit Chat Money is the channel. Um, you can probably search it and find it, but there's going to be very little videos for the time being. And yeah, I mean, it's basically just going to be the podcast. If you from have that out. weird inclination of watching us talk. Which apparently some people like, so that's why we're doing it. And then eventually maybe we'll put it on Spotify when they let And you're going to get that cool new poster too. Yeah, it's exciting. If you didn't see that on Twitter, you may know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to get a good poster to see in the background here. We might do some stuff with the background, but I don't know. If you want to watch on YouTube, it's there. And I think a lot of people like that. Um, So that's your alley. Also, uh, if you have anything, um, new fundamental analysis shows to uh, recommend, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. That's still our email. Yep. You can always hit us up on Twitter. Um, We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for your time. We'll see you next week.
slaughter. 